Hear the word of the Lord. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not want to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he searches hearts, knows what's it is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? Is God as for us who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all? How will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, or nakedness or danger or sword, As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We have, uh, let's pray for Brandon as he comes up to deliver the word for us today, Lord. And his kind demeanor and the way he expresses himself and, and teaches us the word and, and, and the feeling that he brings out of us. So let's watch, let's pray for him that God touches him and helps us get through and understand the things that he's trying to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, BJ. This morning, we're continuing our series through the book of Romans. And our passage today, it it sort of dovetails with last week's verses. You'll remember that we, we talked about how all of creation is groaning as if in childbirth. And the verses went on to say that those of us with the Holy Spirit are also groaning as we await adoptions Uh, adoption as sons of God. 
And now we're going to look at a third kind of groaning. And I think that Paul kind of chose this um, metaphor of childbirth for a reason. Because all of this is in the context of building a family. And when a couple is having a baby, there's a season of waiting that involves preparation and learning and, yes, pain. I remember how painful it was when we had our first child. There was a lot of, like, pacing back and forth in the waiting room. And my feet were so sore. So I know all about the pain of childbirth. But seriously, Paul is painting for us this picture of a mother who is in excruciating pain. And yet she is filled with hope and joy for that which is coming. And he was saying that life in ancient times, in ancient Rome, it was like this. The world was a difficult and broken place and and they were awaiting the return of our Savior who is making all things new. And every generation since that time has felt the same way. Something is wrong with the world. It is fallen and it is broken and sin and pain is everywhere and we long for Jesus to return and make things right. And here's the thing about every generation. We think that things are getting worse than they've ever been before. And we say things like, if only we could get back to those good old days when everybody was a Christian. Well, we'd have to go a long way back. We'd have to go all the way back to the garden. And just like a pregnant mother doesn't yearn for the days before she was pregnant, she yearns for the days to come when she will have a family. We don't yearn for the garden. We yearn for our adoption as children of God to be finalized. And in the meantime, we're left to face some days of uncertainty and pain and yes, even tragedy. And we do our best uh, to make things better in our own power. And we do our best to be grateful and content with the many blessings that we do have. But so often, it seems like all we can do is pray and hope that God hears us. And in our passage of Scripture today, we're going to begin by talking about this kind of desperate prayer. Because what do we do when we experience or when we hear about tragedy or difficulties, right? We go on Twitter and we send up our thoughts and prayers. We think of verses, I think, like 1 John 5, 14 and 15. It says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And so we pray, and if things go our way, then we rejoice and we give God praise. And if they don't go our way, then we assume that somehow we are not 
in accordance with his will, that we've been out of alignment with God. Or, or maybe we think of verses like James 4, 2 and 3, which says, you do not have because you do not ask, or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Maybe our prayers weren't answered because our motives were wrong. How can our motives be wrong when we're praying for someone's healing? How could it not be God's will that a loved one live? How can it be God's will that someone loses a job or that a marriage ends? Difficult and painful things, they happen so often despite our prayers that we begin to wonder if prayer has any efficacy at all. But then we pray for something else and God does something miraculous and it's so obvious that God is in it. It's all very confusing. And I think this is why so much of scripture is spent trying to convince us to actually pray. Because if we just got exactly what we wanted every time we prayed, then it would be really easy to pray. No one would ever have to tell us, hey, you should pray about that. It would just be a no-brainer. It's my hope today that our passage will help us see that our prayers are never a waste of our time and are far more effective than we ever even know. The passage today, uh, it, it takes us in a lot of different directions there's a lot of biblical truth in it, and so my plan is really just to journey through it together, and maybe we'll stop at key points and, and, and you know, read the little signs that tell us what we're looking at, and maybe we'll take a couple of detours along the way. So let's get started. The, the first stop, it, it says on this little sign, it says, our imperfect prayer is made effective by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 26 and 27, as Ryan helped us see earlier, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When Jesus went away to be with the Father for a time, to, to do his work of making all things new, he sent his Holy Spirit to us to be a helper. And one of the ways that he helps us is by interceding for us. Interceding simply means praying for us. But before we look at this closer, let's take a quick detour and I just want to set the record straight about this little bit of Scripture. In some Christian traditions, this bit of Scripture is used as a way to define the spiritual gift of tongues as a secret prayer language. That means simply this, that someone might speak words in a language that they don't know while they pray, and that only the Holy Spirit knows what is being said. Now, this is not a sermon about the spiritual gifts, and I don't have time to get into any of the controversies about the gift of tongues. 
I'm only bringing this up because I wanna make sure that you understand that the context of these verses is not the spiritual gifts. It is a continuation of this groaning theme that Paul has already established. And this is important for you to know because I want you to take great comfort in these verses and know that they apply to you whether or not you have any particular spiritual gift. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that means that the Holy Spirit dwells within you and he is interceding for you. He is with groanings that are too deep for words. Now, this is a comfort because it says here that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. This makes me think of 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And that makes me think of James 5, 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And now you're saying, Brandon, I remember a few weeks ago, Ryan taught us in chapter three that none is righteous. No, not one. How can our prayers have power if none of us is righteous? Because of the groaning of the Holy Spirit within us. Because through the working of the Holy Spirit, we have the power of Jesus Christ who took our sin upon himself and gave to us his righteousness. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And notice that that, uh, in Romans, it specifically mentions that the Spirit intercedes according to the will of God. And we know from that verse in 1 John that if we ask anything in accordance with his will, we have that which we have asked of him. Are you putting all of this together? In our weakness, we don't know how to pray. The world is too broken and we don't understand the complexity of it. And worse, our own passions get in the way and we don't even pray for the right things. And we're not righteous so our prayers have no power. But the Holy Spirit changes everything, imputing Christ's righteousness to us so that the power of Christ rests upon us and he prays on our behalf in perfect alignment with the will of the Father so he always hears us. Our prayers are always effective. Now, this does not mean that we always understand what is happening in the moment. And it doesn't mean that the imperfect words we utter move God to do anything contrary to his perfect will. It doesn't mean that we always get our way just the way that we pray it. But it does mean that he is hearing our prayers. He is responding to our prayers And he is giving us exactly what is best according to his will every single time. Christian, you can't mess up prayer. Isn't that good news? Have you ever hesitated to go to 
God in prayer because you just didn't know what to say? You can just go to God and say, God, I don't know what to pray. Help me. And you can trust that the Holy Spirit is within you, groaning and saying everything that is needed. If you don't pray because it's, you know, it's so boring, it's so wearying to go on and on pleading with God, I would just point you to Jesus' words before he taught us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, 7, and 8, he says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard with their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. My challenge to you today, church, is to remember where the power of your prayers comes from. It is from the spirit of Jesus Christ who is in perfect communion with the Father in heaven. Maybe try for a season, for a few days or a week, maybe try only praying very simple prayers and rely entirely on the spirit to get all of the phrasing right and just see what God might do through your prayer times. Church, I hope you'll find a new freedom in prayer, knowing that the Holy Spirit is there to help you. But this still leaves us with a very troubling question. Why does God's answer to our prayers so often allow for difficult and painful things to happen? Well, I think the next little sign along our journey might be helpful. It says, God is working all things together for good. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We serve a sovereign God, and what that means is that we understand that he is in control of all things. He is not the cause of sin and evil, but all things that come to pass are a part of his divine plan. Now, when we think about these realities, it's mysterious, and it hurts our, our feeble mortal brains. But it's the clear teaching of our scripture. And the alternative would be to believe that evil is outside of God's control, and if that's the case, how could we possibly rely upon him to be the remedy for it? But if we accept that he allows sin and evil, how can we trust him? It is only possible if we believe that he is all loving and all good. And this is the point that Paul is making in this verse. Although there is brokenness in the world and although we don't always get our way when we pray, we take comfort in the truth that all things work together for good. Now, this is not the same thing as saying that only good things happen or that everything that happens is good because that would be naive and kind of contrary to just common sense. But what it is saying is that God has a purpose for everything that he allows or disallows, and that ultimately that purpose is for the good of those whom he loves. So what is God's purpose? God's purpose is that Jesus will be the firstborn among many brothers, See, God's plan is mysterious, and we cannot 
always understand his will, but his ultimate purpose is not a secret. In verse 29, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's purpose is to create a huge family, to make all things new, to draw his people to himself, and then to dwell with them forever in the new heaven and earth. And we see this if we just kind of skip to the end of the book and read in Revelation 21, 5. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But before we can really unpack just how God creates a family, let's take a detour, hopefully not too long of one, and talk about predestination. Now, often we hear it described that there are two camps within the church today, those who believe in predestination and those who do not believe in predestination. But as we see in our verse today, the idea of predestination is not a Presbyterian thing. It is not a John Calvin thing. It is a Bible thing. And when a Bible-believing Christian says, I don't believe in predestination, they can only mean one of two things. They haven't read that part of the Bible yet, or they believe something about predestination that is different from the kind of traditional Reformed view. What is predestination, you may be asking? Um, It's a biblical doctrine. It says that God chose, even before he began creating the world, he chose which people would become Christians, which people would be conformed into the image of his son. And we see it here in Romans, and we also see it prominently in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, where it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So if it's in scripture, why is it controversial? Well, it's because from our human perspective, the concept of predestination seems unfair. It seems unfair that God would choose some people and not choose others. And it's difficult for us to grasp how God's election of us does not deprive humankind of their free will. But despite the fact that we cannot comprehend the infinite ways of God, and despite our confusion... This is the doctrine that is taught in Scripture. And so what do we do with it? In Reformed churches, such as New City, we just take the plain meaning of Scripture. We acknowledge that it's mysterious and difficult to comprehend, and then we place our trust and our faith in God's sovereignty. 
As we discussed just a moment ago, we know that he is loving and good, and therefore we trust that his choices are loving and good, even though we aren't told how he makes those choices. Now, in other churches, how they handle this is they look at the word for new that we see in Romans 8, 29. And they conclude that this must mean that when God predestined us before creation, he used his divine foreknowledge to look ahead in time and see which people would choose to believe and which would not. And this feels less arbitrary on God's part, and it seems to kind of solve our problem of it being unfair, because only those who would have rejected God anyway are predestined for damnation. Now, the most simple problem with this view is that it makes our salvation ultimately dependent on our works and not on our faith. But it's more complicated than just faith versus works because we see in Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, that the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So before we come to Christ, we cannot do anything to please God. We can't choose him because we are spiritually dead. And as it says in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. So if foreknew means that God looked forward in time to see who would choose him, he would find only spiritually dead souls who are unable to choose him unless he first chooses to give them life. There would be no one for him to elect based on foreknowledge. So what did Paul mean when he used this word foreknew? I think we can do a quick word study and other things that Paul wrote, and we can see that Paul uses the root word for to know in a context in which God relates to a select chosen group of people. Here's just a few examples. Romans 11, he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 1 Corinthians 8, 3, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. 2 Timothy 2, 19, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. Galatians 4.9, now you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again? These are all examples of where people chosen from a larger group are described as being known by God. God's foreknowledge is all about relational love. Remember Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us. And Romans 8, 28, for those who love God. The only context that we are given in scripture is that God made his choices out of love. Why did he choose some and not others? We don't know. We are not told how God made his choices. We are told that he is loving and that he is good. All right, so that was a bit of a detour. Let's get back to our journey through Romans 8. We 
now see that we are victorious as a part of God's family. If God's ultimate purpose is creating a family, how does he do this? Well, the first hurdle is dealing with the effects of the fall. Adam and Eve's legacy of sinfulness has been passed down through all generations, and even until it reaches us, even until it reaches our children, we are born into a state of sin. And if we're ever to be in a family with a perfectly holy God, this has to be dealt with. So Paul gives us a synopsis of what exactly happens when someone is taken from that state of sin and brought into a state of grace and then brought into a state of glory. Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. First, he chooses us through predestination to be conformed to the image of his son. And then all who are predestined in that way, then they receive what is known to theologians as the effectual call. The Holy Spirit enlightens our mind so that we are able to understand the word of God and the gospel in it. And then he draws us to himself by giving us a heart of flesh, meaning he brings our kind of hard stone heart to life. And at that point, we are able to choose him. All who were thus called will then be justified. You guys remember a few weeks ago, Ryan taught us all about justification. This is what it's called when when our sin is imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. Remember, Ryan said it was just as if we had never sinned. And then Paul ends this list with this confident statement that all who are justified will also be glorified. Glorification is what will happen upon the second coming of Jesus when we will be made perfect in both body and spirit and we will no longer experience physical or spiritual death and our sin nature will be removed once and for all. Please note that Paul is unambiguous about his certainty. If you are predestined, you will be glorified. You can't resist the Holy Spirit drawing you in, and once in, you won't be kicked out. Jesus said the same thing in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whomever comes to me, I will never cast out. Church, this is such extraordinarily good news that, of course, we have all kinds of objections to it. The natural skeptics in us think this sounds too good to be true. The rule followers think that this is way too lenient, and the rebels think, like, maybe we're going to be forced to be saved against our will. Paul knows that we're going to struggle with this because he starts the next uh, paragraph with, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Church, this might be extraordinary, but is it really surprising? Why would God not work all things for our good? He wants to adopt us into his family. He wanted it so much 
that he gave up his own son, his actual son, for the sake of his adopted sons. Jesus laid down his life for us so that we could become his brothers. He's not going to go to all that trouble and then make it super difficult for us to receive that grace. And this is why Paul can emphatically state that nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No one can bring a charge against someone who is God's elect because it is God himself who justified them. Paul asks, who is to condemn? Who condemns? The one who sits on the throne is the only one who can condemn anyone. Jesus. And he's the very one who paid the penalty for our sins. He's the one who it says is is sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us. He's not gonna go to all that trouble to go and die on a cross for our sins just to turn around and then condemn us anyway. Despite all the best schemes of the enemy, there is nothing that he can throw at us that will change our destination the worst that can happen is what? That we die and we wake in the presence of Jesus? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, nothing. And there is a war between us, between our sin nature and the Holy Spirit. And and though the world and the enemy may throw everything they have at us to try and get us to lose that battle, it doesn't change a thing. Because the battle is already won. Remember, we read the ending, the end of the story in Revelation. The one who conquers will have his heritage. We will be adopted as sons and daughters of God. We are more than conquerors because the battle was won before we even existed. And my challenge to you this week, church, is to look at this passage of, of Romans 8, through 39. Look at it as a prayer. This week, this week I challenge you to take this passage, Romans 8, through 39, and read it together with others before a meal, before bedtime, maybe make it the first thing you do in the morning. Church, we, we live in a time of groaning. Sometimes it may seem like evil is winning or that the suffering that we are experiencing is just too much to bear. But church, we are more than conquerors. Jesus is coming back And we will spend eternity with him as a fully adopted son or daughter. Let's pray. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.